0: This is episode number 51, A Promise Worth Living For, with Erica Curry Van E. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guests, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming event on March 9th in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is a day full of workshops focusing on helping you unleash your unique abilities to surpass your own limitations and create the quality of life you desire, networking with like-minded individuals who have overcome similar odds, and learning from insightful speakers. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash be a voice, not an echo. Now, let's get back to our guests. What is a promise that you made to yourself as a child? She said, When I was growing up, I had a youth leader. She took me to a little restaurant called Olga's Kitchen. I don't even remember what she had said to me, but I know she said something that made me feel like she saw me. She didn't understand what my story was, But she saw me and she reassured me that she loved me and I was beautiful inside and out. That there was a purpose for my life. I left that meeting with her making a promise that if I made it through my teen years, I would spend the rest of my life helping other kids find their way. What once seemed as a simple promise is now part of Erica's life work. To change the world through reforming practices and policies in domestic and international adoption. What is a promise that you made to yourself that you still need to fulfill? Without further ado, please welcome Erica Curry Van E. Erica, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Oleg. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here with you.
0: Absolutely. The way that I wanted to start this episode a little bit differently than the past, and that is before we get into the theme of life as a consultant, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background for those who aren't familiar with your story. So as far back as you can remember where you were born, the type of upbringing you've had, um, please share whatever you feel is relevant.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, I was born back in 1969 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I didn't live in Cincinnati very long. Um, I ended up actually being adopted at two months old, and then we moved away from Cincinnati within probably a year. We lived in, I think we went from Cincinnati to California, and we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I think we moved Seven, eight times before I was 10 years old. Hmm. And I was raised with uh, two older brothers who were also adopted, one who was five years older and another who's three years older. And they were adopted from Pennsylvania, which is where my parents originated from. So uh, when I think back on my childhood, honestly, so much of it is a blur. Um, and I think it was partly because there was just a lot of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and Growing up as an adopted child, uh, I remember always searching, always wondering. Um, I always knew. My mom and dad told me from the time I can remember that I was adopted. Uh, But I I had a lot of insecurity about that and a lot of fear that I was going to lose my parents that I had. Uh, I used to have this reoccurring dream and it's so strange now I reflect on it, but it makes complete sense. But I used to have this reoccurring dream that my, my mom would fly out the window. we would be like driving down the, the, um, road together. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was in between my mom and my dad, my dad's on the left driving, my mom's on the right, and then she flies out the window. And, um, so, you know, that's one of my most prominent memories of childhood, right? Mm. Obviously, I was terrified that I would lose my mom. And then um, there was a, an accident when I was about nine, or I'm sorry, five years old. There was an accident, and um, my dad uh, was working on a grill for our family. And we were, um, he was preparing some food, and the grill was actually already lit. And so my dad put lighter fluid on top of it, and that lighter fluid caught fire. And then I caught fire. And, um, it was pretty intense. So my mom ended up jumping on me to put me out Mm -hmm. and, um, I went, I went to the hospital. I think I was there for eight days. Um, but it was pretty serious, obviously, um, being so young. And so my dad, I remember him telling me much later in life that after that accident happened, he really pulled back emotionally because it was just such a shocker to him that, something so terrible could happen under his care. Mm -hmm. Um, so he felt a lot of, uh, just guilt about that. And, and I think, um, based on how he grew up, he didn't have the best childhood. So, you know, he was, he was present in my life as a child, but, um, our relationship really became distant after that fire. And then, um, and then my parents, really separated, I think about the time I was nine to 11, sometime in that range, my dad was still around, but he would come home less and less and less. And, um, you know, he was moving around from place to place. And my mom, um, before we moved to Michigan, we lived in Connecticut. And then when we moved to Michigan, by the time we moved here, I was 11 years old. And my mom said, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore to the kids. You know, we, we can't be moved anymore. It was just too destabilizing. And especially for my oldest brother, who was just starting high school. So my dad went on, and he continued to take jobs in Indianapolis and in Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, But my mom said, I'm done, and she stayed put. And so she really made a choice uh, for us kids to stabilize Mm -hmm. us. But also, with that choice, she was working a lot. Um, She never really planned to work full-time, but she ended up having a pretty – pretty amazing career actually in neurological critical care. And she did a lot of work. Like She started the first brain tumor support group in, um, in our community. And that still goes today. I mean, my mom's 84 years old and she's still running this brain <laughs> tumor group. It's pretty amazing and, um, ran organ donation programs. And so she had a really, um, just a very demanding job which meant that we were alone a lot as kids. And so, you know, I look back on it now and I think both my brothers and I, we all experienced trauma from relinquishment and just from the experience of adoption. Um, And none of us really knew how to deal with it. We didn't really talk about it. It wasn't a secret in our home, but it uh, it was just something we didn't really talk about. You know, my parents were, my parents, And there was no option that there was ever going to be an openness in our adoption or that we were going to find our biological families. Uh, It just wasn't done like that back Mm -hmm. in the 60s. So um, I think that my brothers, all three of us really had some developmental issues because of that lived experience that were not really recognized that it was due to the adoption. So for example, I used to have a lot of emotional issues. And I remember um, the the uh, folks at school pulling me out of the classroom and testing me for emotional impairment. Um, and I was obsessed with searching for my biological family. And I remember my favorite book when I was a little girl was, Are You My Mother? and had hey, my mom read that to me probably a thousand times. I can't even imagine what she thought, um, because she was always my mom. But I also knew there was something missing, and um, and so I, when I turned 18, I actually applied for my my non-identifying information. I received it, and then I um, over the course of the next 27 years, applied for my identifying information. That information was denied. To me from the adoption agency. And then I was, it was explained to me that the state of Ohio actually had a closed records period. So if you were born after 1964 and before 1996, your records were sealed for life without a court ordered um, um, mandate that would open the records. And so I did actually apply for that court order. Uh, from the probate court I was turned down. I was told that um, you know it was against the law to reveal my records I hired private investigators at least two private investigators who told me that I was never gonna get my records unless I broke the law So I thought about that too I thought <laughs> I was into vital statistics in uh, in Columbus Ohio and doing whatever I could to you know even breaking into the hospital um, but obviously i never, pursued that path, I mean, uh, you, but it was... Really- you, were,
0: you were obviously going to turn that into a film had you done that, right?
1: Yeah, right, right. I don't have a catchy title for it yet, but maybe you can help me with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I
1: don't actually recommend breaking the law. What I'd really recommend is that we change the laws. And so um, what happened for me is in 2015, March 20th of 2015, I was actually given the legal right to apply for my original birth certificate. Uh, So that was amazing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that in the United States, that all across the states, I think there's only nine of our states that actually have open records, but the rest are um, at some period of time, the records are closed and then they're opened again. So kind of like a donut, you know, where they were open, closed, open, or they've never been opened. And so Mm -hmm. Michigan also is a donut hole state where, our records are closed from 1945 to 1980. So if you're born before or after, you can get your records. Um, And that to me just did not make any sense. And fortunately, it didn't make any sense to Betsy Norris in Ohio, who was the person who advocated for the same 27 years that I was advocating, um, but never realizing I could change the law. And so she got the records open. March 20, I applied for my birth certificate, Easter Sunday, I um, opened my birth certificate at the exact moment of my birth. I was in Chicago on a high rise that a friend had invited us to stay in. And it was amazing. Uh, You know, first time I'd ever seen an actual name of my biological parents. And Mm -hmm. so an hour, my husband actually found them on Facebook And, um, my friend requested her and then went to church and then halfway through the Easter church service, she accepted my friend request. And, uh, from there, a couple months went by and we ended up, uh, reuniting. First thing she said to me was, you must have a million questions and I'll gladly answer everyone. And so she was incredibly gracious and open hearted to me, open-minded to this idea of reunite reuniting with me she never would have searched for me because she was told you know your parental rights are terminated Mm -hmm. and this child is no longer yours but it brought her tremendous healing for me to find her and um and it brought me tremendous healing and then i also found my biological father and um through that discovery which has also been amazing um i found that I have four siblings, I have um, actually a sister on my mother's side and a sister on my father's side, both of them have triplets, um, so it's just been amazing to learn my story, to learn my medical history, I've met my aunts um, that are out west, I've met an aunt that lives in Germany, um, and just gotten a lot of clarity and understanding, and most of all, a sense of wholeness and healing, so That's it's incredible, yeah, It's been great. I've got over 20 biological relatives over the last three years, and now my life mission is to pay it forward to Mm -hmm.
0: the next generation. Could you explain to us a little bit, for those who may not be fully aware of this concept, but why is it for a period of certain years, the records are open, and then another chunk they're not, and then after that they're open again? Like, What is the reasoning that you found through your research and your work that explains Kind of that phenomenon there
1: yeah that's a great question well I think a lot of it had to do with the professionalization of the adoption uh, community really mm-hmm. so prior to the 1940s uh, a lot of adoptions were handled through kinship uh, you know maybe or through a church or a faith community. So it was a, it was not as professionalized. And so when adoption became professionalized, there was some beliefs that really, um, characterized the time of history, which included the idea of, um, there was a shame associated with being born as an illegitimate child
0: Mm -hmm. to
1: an unwed parent. So very, you know, a lot of, birth moms will talk about, there's no way I could have kept my child. First, I didn't have access to birth control. And second, there's no way I could have been a single mother. It just wasn't an acceptable choice uh, at that time in history. So there's been a lot of lifelong pain for women that wanted to keep their children, but society would never have accepted that, nor their families. And then the other piece I think that uh, really played a large role in it was this idea of blank slate, Uh, theory, which is, in essence, that it doesn't matter what kind of genetic history or conditions a child's born into. If they're placed in a new home, they're a blank slate. And so they can overcome any adversity that may be characterized by the circumstances of their birth. Mm. And this closed and sealed um, identity would also spare them of the shame of being illegitimate. Mm -hmm. So know, there's a lot of, uh, of that uh, driving thinking that really resulted in the closed records. And I think also, you know, they used to do a lot of matching back in the day of, you know, the birth mother has blonde hair, blue eyes, and the adoptive parent has blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, again, to try to do as much matching for assimilation purposes. And, you know, adoptive parents drove and still drive the business, model of adoption, Mm -hmm. um, the clients that pay the adoption agency to facilitate the adoption. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of power in that. And it's a much less complicated scenario if the biological family is no longer involved, especially Mm -hmm. if you believe that your child's a blank slate and that it's not going to matter. But now we know it does matter so much. And our identity is comprised of nature and nurture and chance and so many other factors. So the records have reopened in many states because we realize there is, uh, there's nothing good that can come out of secrecy and shame. And, um, and we need to have truth and transparency and adoption.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to transition slightly from your story to the theme of the episode, because, I think one of the things that fascinated me about your story when I first heard about it is your ability to churn a lot of these traumatic experiences such as you know the the times that where you had to move between different houses. you said you moved at least seven times. Um, I can only imagine the things that it can create within your mind as far as not having a stable place to not even necessarily live but like belong and the fact mm-hmm. that you're moving that much so how have those traumatic experiences prepared you for the personal success that you've been able to accomplish through a lot of your leadership and consulting background?
1: Yeah, I love that question. So I think, um, you know, I, I have to go back in history a little bit and share that when I was growing up, I had a youth group leader uh, her name is Jill Fortin, and she took me to a little restaurant called Olga's Kitchen. And I don't even remember, honestly, what she said to me, but I know she said something to the effect that made me feel like she saw me, she saw, she didn't understand what my story was, but she saw me and she reassured me that she loved me and that I was beautiful, inside and out, and that there was a purpose for my life. And I left that meeting with her, making a promise that if I made it through my teen years, I would spend the rest of my life helping other kids find their way. Hmm. And I was probably 13 when I made that promise. And honestly, that has been my North Star. And so I ended up going to college. I studied psychology and theater And my initial thought was that I was going to be a play therapist and work with kids in trauma and use play as a therapeutic technique for their healing. But then my senior year of my college experience, I ended up um, getting offered either uh, an internship to work in a suicide prevention center or work for Girl Scouts. And I thought, hey, that's wild. I was a Girl Scout. I didn't say all the way (laughs) to the little bit. But I, I was in Girl Scouts, and I remember being in Girl Scouts in Connecticut and then being Girl Scouts in Michigan. So I knew it was a model that could follow a kid no matter where they lived. And mm-hmm. so I ended up running all these troops, um, kindergarten through 12th grade, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And then I applied to uh, work at a camp in Germany, and I worked there for two years, and then I worked in San Francisco for a year. What's interesting is that um, – when I worked in Germany, I was only a couple hours away from where my entire biological family came from. My mom came to, to the United States when she was five years old and her whole family returned back to Germany after I was born. So it's interesting that I don't even know why I was drawn to Germany, but I was drawn there. And so, you know, I think some of those things are our primal, you know, mm-hmm. our ancestral roots calling us home, so I did this work with Girl Scouts for a total of ten years, and that's where i I ran a lot of leadership programs uh, for adults. I did all the training, I ran all the teen leadership programs, and it was the first time in my life I really felt great at something you know i I realized that I had a gift to connect, especially with teens. And um, and bring them together and believe into them even before they believed in themselves. And so I um, I did this work with Girl Scouts for a decade, and then I worked with United Way for a few years funding um, children and youth programs, and then um, and really found myself at that point specializing in this this youth development. Content area, you know, where there's after school programs or scouting programs or um, youth group or 4 H. And one of the reasons I chose this is because I believe so much in longevity of relationship. And I think that outside of your parents, it is often in these kinds of youth development programs where you get the social emotional supports that you need and you have a multi year relationship versus mm-hmm. a traditional education setting where you're handed off year to year and so I, I that really appealed to me and i felt like that is what had made a difference in my life is having a youth group leader that was with me for a number of formative years and so i ended up pursuing that path Um, and I really did everything I could. I remember thinking I want to be in every kind of position, you know, running programs, funding programs, raising money for programs. And then I started with wanting to help the kids. So I was a direct practitioner, but then I realized, well, the best way to help the kids is to have a really strong program and the best way to have a great program, a strong program is to have a strong organization. And the best way to have a strong organization is to have the funding in place that allows you to be strong, and the best way to have good funding, solid funding, is to have a great program model that's based on research, and hopefully the research is driving the policy that's releasing the funding mm-hmm. that's organizations that supports the programs, that supports the staff that ultimately gets to the kids. So I can't, I went full circle, and I worked locally, state, national, and international, and I worked in nonprofit, public sector. Um, and ended up just gaining so many tools in that process. You know, I, I not everything fit. I worked as a research manager for a couple of years, realized I didn't love research. I love evaluation and evaluative thinking, but research, I, and I appreciate it, but it's not something that I knew I was gifted to do in the long term. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up uh, putting all of these together and, uh, in a toolbox and I was working for a local university and, um, ended up having my contract. It wasn't renewed. Uh, and so I thought, gosh, what am I going to do? And so I just sat back and I thought, I don't really feel like trying to find another job. I'm just gonna, I'm going to wait and see what happens. And, um, and so in that process, then I ended up launching my consulting practice, Urban Curry Consulting. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that was five years ago. And, and it's been amazing, um, you know, but I couldn't have done it without these incredible experiences. You know, I'd spent five years doing national consulting, and that really um, gave me a lot of the structure and process and um, kind of the know-how to do this work. But what's different now is that when I was doing national work through other organizations, I worked for the Forum for Youth Investment and for an organization called Kids Hope USA, and I was doing policy uh, advisement and national demonstration product, projects. And it was amazing, but it was kind of like doing brain surgery across country. And so to be able to be back in my own community where um, you know so much of my healing has taken place has been a tremendous gift.
0: That's awesome. How do you I'm I'm curious to know because I think every single person that starts a business definitely experiences this. You know, when you first started it, um were there was there ever any doubt that things would not work out? And if so, during that journey, I mean I'm sure it happened for you too, even in year two and three and four and maybe even year five of this business where that doubt still creeps in and how do you almost like remotivate yourself and tell yourself that okay this is not any different than what i experienced when i first started and look where i am today like how how do you keep going during those times of adversity
1: yeah that's a great question well i've been really fortunate um because i've actually never marketed myself at all i've been um i've just been it's all been word of mouth and so what I did is I I was really afraid at the very beginning, you know, and I remember talking with a friend of mine who's also a consultant and she's like, you're going to be all right. But I just didn't know, you know, how do you scope the project? How do you price a project? Um, what if people don't want to hire me? Right. And, And, um, you know, that was my initial fear, just that fear of rejection and abandonment that is, you know, goes all the way back to my relinquishment trauma. So, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't so paralyzing that uh, I couldn't overcome it. And I think part of it was, you know, I, I tried to adopt this yes. And mindset, you know, but also be really judicious around what I would say yes to. So for example, I ended up getting picked up to teach a strategic management and uh, planning class for our graduate program uh, at our local university right after when my contract ended with this same organization, I got picked up to start teaching for the grad school, which was great. And, um, and so one of my students was the first person who said, Hey, I want you to come in and do some strategic planning. And, um, you know, I was like, I don't know, you know, it was a statewide organization. It was health focused. And I said, all my work's really been in education and youth development. And she's like, no, you know what? I I really, you're the one that we want for this. Um, that's transferable. That skill set's transferable. So I said yes, and I went ahead and did it, and it was a great experience. Um, and then from there, I started having people reach out to me that uh, they they said, "Hey, we want you to come facilitate this, um, or we want you to really help us think strategically about that." And so I really sat back for the first year and I just listened to what people were inviting me into. And then from there, I realized, you know, it was over and over again. It was, it was facilitation design and strategy. And so then I was like, okay, if this is my sweet spot, what's my passion point on where I want to apply this set of skills. And I knew that for myself, I really wanted to focus on anything that was going to help kids, you know, going back to that promise when I was 13, Mm -hmm. help kids. And so I, um, my decision filter really became when anybody asked me if I would be involved in something I would have to ask, you know, is this something that is going to leverage my very best skill set? Is this something where I'm going to get to work with people that I have mad respect for and can learn from? And is this something that's going to change the world, especially when it comes to children, their families, our community? Mm -hmm. Um, And if I couldn't say yes to all those four, then I would not say yes to the project. And I think that that discipline has served me well because I've not engaged in anything. I've not said yes to anything that I I would fail at, you know, because I don't want to waste my time. It's not so much a fear of failure as much as, You know, I have a finite amount of time on this planet and I want to maximize my impact. Mm -hmm. I believe that I'm here for a purpose. I believe my purpose to inspire, empower and equip leaders to change their world. And I believe my purpose is to um, promote healing and wholeness. And so my purpose, my leadership coaching and consulting practice is comprised of um, really just a handful of clients. Uh, you know I am very intentional about who I work with and um, and then I also teach um, leadership dynamics class for our local university and I do a lot of one-on-one coaching work um, and in fact you know maybe more than adversity or how I overcome those challenges I, I can say that this last year when I found my biological family it absolutely changed the trajectory of my life and I realized, you know, I tried so many things to find my family, but I didn't have the agency to know that I could change the law. And so I wanted to change that. I wanted to, but I couldn't do that from a place where I still didn't have my identity and my records. And so um, I thought, okay, well, I want to work on this. But I also felt this sense, uh, and I believe in God, and I, I felt God was saying to me, you know what, no, you just need to be in this season of preparation. Just just stay in the season. And so, um, there was a time and a season about three years ago, right before I found my family. I was involved in our local neighborhood organization. I was on our planning commission. I was running a community cleanup that my husband and I had started. I was on the board of our social committee um, for our condo association. And I felt this um, this leading that I needed to prune, that I needed to just like cut off these things that I was doing that weren't giving me joy and passion so I could make room for the next thing to be born. So I ended up resigning from all those boards. Um, and then I just sat with it and I leaned into my reunion and going through healing and trying to, you know, process through the complexity of it. I mean, it's the most complex thing I've ever had to process emotionally, spiritually, cognitively. So while I was doing that, I was also consulting, and originally I was getting called in to do a lot of design work, program design or evaluation or organizational strategy and strategic planning. And I still get called to do that work. But the last year, when I felt this sense that, you know, 2019 is going to be the year that this thing is going to be born, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I also had this sense that I I needed to pivot and I needed to refine. And what I learned about myself, I did a lot of learning this last year, a lot of self-assessments and leadership classes and and more certifications and credentialing. But one of the things that I learned is that my passion is really working one-on-one with individuals and working with teams. And, and instead of coming in and doing strategic planning for an organization, I'd much rather coach somebody to think strategically and give them tools that then will be sustainable, that they'll be with them for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like a much smarter way to work. So I have pivoted my consulting practice to be even more narrow in terms of um, really leveraging my my gifts with people. and um, And so that's that's happened. And then concurrently, this, um, this emergence of a new idea is being born, and that is this Michigan Adoptee Collaborative, uh, which is a new nonprofit, not quite a nonprofit yet, but it will be a new nonprofit um, that will serve adoptees and all people in the triad across the state of Michigan. Um, so I've been able to design my life in such a way that my paid work is about half time mm-hmm. and that gives me the resource both financial and time resource to invest in this other passion work for me which is to change the adoption experience for the next generation
0: mm-hmm. so how does someone who just starts off in the field of consulting or leadership development like how do Obviously, word of mouth, all of it, at least based on my understanding, is developed from your network and connections. So if you're someone who doesn't have that and you're just starting off, what advice do you give them as far as what you've seen over the years that has worked where they can at least get the ball rolling and then from there find ways to create and maintain those relationships and so that eventually it will turn into a word of mouth? But before they have that, where do they what do you do?
1: Yeah, that's that's really good. I think a few things. One, I had a mentor say to me once, people need to see you in a position before a position is even created. Mm. Yeah, people need to see you in a position before a position is even created. So I think um, one piece of it is knowing what you're really good at and, um, and half of knowing what you're great at and what you love is knowing what you're not great at and what you don't love. So it's important to pay attention to your energy and where you are feeling just a massive amounts of alignment with your sense of your purpose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where you're in flow is what we call it, right? So, you know, a lot of times you want people, you want to you want to push beyond your comfort zone. It's really important to be at your growing edge or your learning edge but it's equally important to spend a significant amount of time in flow where you're great at what you're doing and you're feeling really positive. You're feeling like you're making impact. And, um, and so I think that the best way for people to see you in a position that's not even created yet is to have an experience with you. So I will often coach and encourage I've mentored a lot of millennial women. Um, I have, you know, work, working with Girl Scouts, I have a passion with working with women. Um, I just really believe uh, this just fills my soul. So uh, a lot of these women, though, that I'll coach, I'll encourage them to, uh, you know, if they're in the job they don't love. So is what is it that they do love? You know, what are they really great at? What are the, the topics that are important to them that they're passionate about? And some people some people have a certain niche and other people are more generalist and they're like, I love event planning and I don't care who it's for, I just wanna do event planning. Mm -hmm. But you know, folks that say, I'm great at event planning and I also really have a passion around cancer because I had a father die of cancer and I wanna really teach other people from what I learned, then I would say, well, okay, let's get you connected with an organization that that's exactly what they do. So we Mm -hmm. have a prophet named Gilda's Club you know, and so let's connect you with them, volunteer with them. And, you know, and then I think that especially in today's world, there's such a blurring of personal and professional Mm -hmm. getting into, uh, you know, if there's a young nonprofit professionals group or a young professionals group or an industry group, uh, in training and development or engineering or whatever, but trying to find affinity groups that will allow you to practice that craft that you um, that you want to practice. I think is a big part of it, and I also think it's crucial to have mentors. I never have taken a job um, where I wasn't working for somebody that I respected and that mm-hmm. I could learn from, as a consultant, and also in my work. I mean, I I was really fortunate to have just tremendous leaders that taught me so much. And I think a lot of times we have to be careful what we let become normal because what Mm -hmm. can become normal is, you know, settling for status quo for "Mm, it's okay, Mm -hmm. but I don't really want to take that risk. Maybe there's really nothing better out there. I mean, I think that it's possible to absolutely love your work and be energized every single day. Uh, For me, the thing that gets me up and and keeps me motivated is that I'm I'm working on things that are changing the world and using my best skills with people that I respect and admire and mm-hmm. so that has been a winning combination for me and because of that it's you know I I've, I've done all word of mouth you know one thing I have done it's interesting I just I you know I do such heavy work with this adoption work it can be very heavy. Um, so I said, you know, I really want to do something a little lighter. So i last fall, I went out to San Francisco, I got certified in this, this model of creating and sustaining high performing teams that I've used for years, but I really wanted to get the certification so I could do, you know, surveys and assessments. And then I paired up with our local escape room. And so now we have corporate groups <laughs> come in and they do the escape room and the That's ID. awesome them and we talk about what does it look like to be a high performing team and it's just a lot of fun you know I'm getting I have a lot of joy but it's still it's still teaching and it's still making an impact um so I think you know doing an annual audit on where you at where there's a, a great resource called design your life um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was written by Um, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, and they're the founders of the D School at Stanford. So that's a great book to pick up, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived Joyful Life. And they've got a lot of excellent uh, exercises that can help you assess, you know, where are you at in your life with health, with work, with play, with love, and then really customize a plan to design a self-authored life that aligns with all that you hope and dream for. Mm.
0: Mm. I think one of the things that you said is very important to dissect a little is when you were talking about changing the world. Based on my understanding, at least in today's society, it's that we oftentimes think changing the world means changing the lives of millions of people. But I really think that changing the world could be as simple as changing a life. Of not only yourself, but maybe even the neighbor that you live next to. So in in today's day and age where everything seems to be focused on information and the number of likes you get, the number of followers you have, which I don't think that defines impact to begin with. But with that, it's important for people to understand that changing the world can start with changing one life. It it doesn't have to mean that you have to change hundreds of people before you can prove yourself worthy and allow others to understand that that's what change means.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, what keeps me anchored again is that North Star, you know, I'll I'll never forget uh, there was a student named Christian and they, they were, uh, in an after school program. I think he was probably maybe fifth grade and he had put his hands in this blue paint and they were finger painting and it was all over his hands. And he went up to another student and he, he walked right up to him and he put his hands right up to his face and his leader of this program that I was, um, auditing that day said, Christian, is that a good choice? And he looked at his hands and he looked at her and he looked at his hands. He looked at this kid and looked at her and then he went and washed his hands. So, you know, I, that moment of asking him, is that a good choice? You know, how has that stayed with him? What did that teach him Mm -hmm. in his life about having the agency to ask himself, is that a good choice? And so I think, I really believe that, the most transformative change happens in relationship, person by person, which is why that North Star for me, even though it's taken me all over the globe to you know the upper echelons of companies, at the end of the day, it's about that little guy Christian mm-hmm. and somebody in his life loving him and believing into him before he has the ability to believe in himself. By teaching them how to listen, how to ask open-ended questions, how to identify what is it that I'm feeling inside and how do I how do I express that?
0: Mm-hmm. How do I
1: process through that? Um, how do I know what I'm good at in the world? How do I know what my purpose is? So I absolutely agree that um, the most powerful transformations that I've had have happened in relationship um, with somebody generally that I trust that is... Pressing me to go beyond what I'm even thinking I'm capable of, including wow. starting my consulting practice. Mm-hmm. So, Gretchen, uh, you're out there. I'm going to send you this link. You're the person who pushed me off the bridge. So, thank you.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Final thought for today's episode. And this is a question I ask all of our guests When the odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to?
1: Mm, well, I say everything's changing all the time. So even when I was a teenager in the most despairing moments, uh, I was never suicidal, but I remember feeling this desperation at times that life was so hard and confusing. And I remember thinking, you know what, just sleep on it because tomorrow's a new day. And I think that's a, a core fundamental principle is that every day we get another chance to do better. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm not where I used to be, but thank God, you know, I'm not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. Right. And so, um, life is a process and, and, um, every day you have choices on the person that you want to be in the world. And every day I fall short of the person that I want to be in the world, but I get another chance tomorrow and I get another chance right now and now. And now, so I think there's optimism, there's hope, there's hope in that truth that no matter what we have, we have the choice, we have the agency to make the choice. And I think another very powerful tool is the ability to reframe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to um, get yourself unstuck a lot of times is about trying on a different set of glasses. So, you know, there are truth is a perception and perception is different based on who you are. So no matter what the conflict or what the situation, I think you can jumpstart yourself into a different mindset by adopting a cognitive reframe model. Like, okay, I'm going to look at this from five different ways and I'm going to choose my own adventure here. Or thinking about even the most tragic things in our life. I think actually are the things that can bring the most hope to others. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, why did I live through all I lived through? I believe that my full healing and restoration is going to come when I can create something, create the beauty from the ashes Mm -hmm. and, and make a difference for another person. So I think that those are some universals. You know, there's always another day. Um, you have a choice on how you view something and, um, you know, you can take the most tragic things in your life and purpose them to make meaning so that it's not pain in vain, but there's really a purpose that can be redeeming and that can be restorative and healing to another.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think one of the ways people do find that purpose is from that sense of pain and trauma? is that a good place to start?
1: I think so. You know, I really do. I mean, I, I know it's hard to face pain. Um, and I look now at all the coping mechanisms that served me really well at an earlier time in my life, but not so much now. And I'll give you a very concrete example. So I love to eat and when (laughs) as most of us do, (laughs) right? I mean, I love to eat so much. And, um, and it's so funny because I was with my my little niece who's two years old this weekend, and she was eating this piece of pizza and picking off the pepperoni and, like, just in her glory while she was savoring this pizza. And I'm like, I understand that passion. This is totally genetic. I'm the same way. But uh, anyway, so – uh, when I was a little girl, my mom would tell me, my mom told me that I would scream and cry and carry on when I was a baby and so, until she would just put, a, put some crackers in front of me. And I'm sure that I was mourning. You know, I was screaming and crying like, what the heck is going on? Everything has changed. And we know so much about what's happening in utero. I mean, this woman I grew in was suddenly gone who I knew her sound. I knew her smell, her voice. I had cellular exchange with her. She never came back no matter how long and hard I cried. And so I learned to stop crying for her. Um, But I don't think I ever stopped searching for her. And that food was a comfort for me. Well, that's a great thing. But in extreme, that has been problematic for me. You know, so when I'm emotionally triggered, instead of working through that pain, a lot of times I've just chosen to, you know, open up the freezer and polish off that half gallon of ice cream, or, you know, go into uh, a binge of some sort. I struggled with an eating disorder when I was in middle school and high school, and after high school. Um. So, so this thing that helped me cope actually became a destructive force in the end but I wouldn't be able to teach about that or help coach other people through that if I didn't have the courage to work through that myself. And so I think in going through your own healing, it's it's enough that you're just healing for yourself, but it's like the cherry on the ice cream if you can take that healing and pay it forward to someone else. So I absolutely think that for me, it's the only way that I can make sense of what I've been through in my life is that I can use it for something positive and good. And maybe in some way that's justifying or rationalizing, because I don't know, I don't think that, you know, I was destined to have this life that I had, but I'm going to make the very best of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and try to help others avoid some of the same things that I went through by just creating awareness Mm -hmm. and, uh, And building skills. And so, yeah, I think that's a piece of it. I think for other people, they have a natural talent and they figure out how to leverage that and use that. Maybe it's making music, um, you know, or making food for people and creating culinary creations. Um, it can be all sorts of things, but I do think your passion at times and purpose at times is expressed through your work but it doesn't have to be. It can be expressed in many different veins. So I guess the, the only other thing I just want to share is as you think about being a leader and living into your purpose, there's really three domains that you can lean into. One is what's happening in that workspace, but another is where are you serving and giving and expressing that purpose in your community space? And third, and maybe most important, what does that look like in your home and your family space? Mm. Some of the most challenging leadership um, lessons that I've had to rise to are in my family. Um, That's our first practice ground. And I had to take care of my dad this last year. He passed in June. And it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I didn't think I could do it. But in the end, when I was present with him, when he took his last breath, And it was the most beautiful, peaceful gift that I never would have received if I didn't have the courage to press through that pain and Mm -hmm. and lean into my own healing.
0: How do people find you? How do people follow your work? And what do you have coming up as far as possible events or things like that, that people can attend?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good question. I am at Facebook. I'm on Facebook at Erica Curry Vanny. I, um, so it's Erica with a C curry with a C like the spice and Vanny is like a van with two E's on it. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter as urban curry. My consulting practice is urban curry consulting. I'm actually just about to launch my website after five years. I think it's probably time. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, uh, so you can find me at all those spots. And then we have, um, the Michigan Adoptee Collaborative, you can find us on Facebook, we're working on that website right now too. Um, And then um, we've got a group uh, called Adoptees Connect Grand Rapids, that uh, if you're a local or a person in Michigan and you wanna learn more about what we've got going on here, Michigan Adoptee Collaborative or Adoptees Connect Grand Rapids are both Facebook sites you can check out. And I think that we're uh, we've got a couple different events coming up. You and I are going to be doing our tour across the state of Michigan. I'm so excited for that. So March nine, we're doing um, we're doing the overcoming odds, uh, be a voice, not an echo. And when we uh, and then March 16, the next weekend we'll be in Ann Arbor and we'll be doing overcoming odds. Seeing is believing. And we've got, some serious powerhouse speakers coming to just share their testimony about what life was like to grow up as an adopted person or a foster care person and and how they have been able to overcome the odds and just create amazingly impactful lives. And so I'm super excited to be doing that with you. And then I'll also be on April 4th, I'm going to be presenting Um, at the American Adoption Congress in Washington, D.C., a workshop around uh, our work in Michigan and how to build a statewide network of support for adoptees and foster care families.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, just being a good role model to live your life according to. So I've appreciated the time and the ability to learn about who you are and i'm sure a lot of the listeners will do the same thing
1: ah thank you it's such an honor and a joy to meet you Oleg. you are a rock star and i love what you're doing in the world and i'm honored to be able to work with you
0: thank you all for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand up and speak up stories and ways you can be involved with overcoming odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.